Baseball at all levels, Little League to the Major Leagues, is filled with highlights and developing stories. This past week was not an exception, and they will only build in the weeks to come. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. I'm going to begin this week with some noteworthy happenings from Major League Baseball over the past week since we last spoke a week ago today. First of all, on Tuesday, Angels pitcher Reed Detmers threw a no-hitter against the Tampa Bay Rays. It was only his 11th career Major League start, and Reed is 22 years old, and he became the youngest Angels pitcher in history to throw a no-hitter. Also with the Angels... They had the highlight of Shohei Otani hitting career home run number 100 last week, and he has continued to add to that number since. I mentioned last Monday that the team with the longest winning streak in Major League Baseball at that time was the Houston Astros. Well, they continued to win. They put together an 11-game winning streak. During that time, the pitching staff collectively had an ERA below one. They were beat on Saturday by the Washington Nationals, but then they came back yesterday with a shutout victory. And it was Justin Verlander who threw the first five zeros up in that game as he continues to pitch exceptionally well coming back from Tommy John surgery. So Houston, though not with the best record in baseball, remains the hottest team, having won 12 of their past 13 games. And then some pitching notes from yesterday's games. One man took the mound yesterday and in doing so, became only one of two men ever to accomplish a particular feat. The man who took the mound was Albert Pujols. He made his career debut as a pitcher, and he did so, of course, for the Cardinals. And in doing so, joined Babe Ruth as the only two players in Major League Baseball history to pitch and hit 600 or more home runs. Now, I don't think Pujols is going to have a second career as a pitcher, He threw an inning, gave up three hits, I believe two home runs and four runs. But nonetheless, it was fun for him, for the Cardinals, and for the fans. The week had a no-hitter at the beginning of the week on Tuesday and also at the beginning of this week, yesterday. The Cincinnati Reds threw a no-hitter against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Hunter Green went the first seven and a third innings. The last two outs were recorded by Art Warren. Now, if you were unaware of that no-hitter, you might be thinking, well, wait a second, seven and a third plus two means eight innings. How does that work out? Here's how. The Reds threw a no-hitter in Pittsburgh against the Pirates, but they lost one to nothing. And I was surprised to read that this is the sixth time in history that a team has thrown a no-hitter and lost. Now, there are plenty of other stories including the developing division races as we approach about the one-quarter point or 25% point in Major League Baseball. But I want to turn my attention to other levels of the game, starting out by 
turning my attention to minor league baseball. On Thursday, I went to my first professional baseball game in three years. It was in Grand Rapids. The West Michigan Whitecaps, a high A ball affiliate of the Detroit Tigers, were playing the Bloit Snappers. They are the high A affiliate of the Miami Marlins. And I want to encourage you, make an attempt to get to a minor league game this summer. And and if you've never been to one, especially make that attempt. Take out a map. If you don't live real close, take out a map and say, okay, which is the closest minor league town and team to where I live? And try to get there. I think you will enjoy it. I think it will be worth your while. And if you do, show up early. Get there waiting so that as soon as they allow you into the stadium as a fan, when the gates open, you're able to go in. And when you do, take it all in. Take in the sights, the sounds, the smells as the food is being prepared. Take that all in. And then also take in the fact that as you move closer and closer to game time, how there's an increase in the buzz. Of course, more people are coming in, but you can also feel that the building of the excitement for the game. And as you get there early, and it varies from stadium to stadium when they will allow you in. But I think all will allow you in to at least see some of the pregame work being done on the field by the teams. Now, when I got in, the Bloit Snappers were finishing up batting practice. They were done with their defensive works uh, work. But in a lot of cases, you can get in and see that. You can see the drills that are being done. You can see the fungos being hit. And, and when you get there, and especially if you have young children or any children that you bring, you can, you can look and say, look at all of the work that goes in prior to the start of the game. This is what it takes to develop into a Major League Baseball player. And even when all of that is done, watch what happens when the teams are done and they're no longer doing work on field. Watch as the grounds crew comes out and takes away the batting cage and the screens and the tarps and the mats and all of those things that were in place. And then goes about its meticulous care for the field in getting the field ready, the pitching mound ready, home plate area ready, and all that they do, lining the fields, watering it down. It's absolutely beautiful to watch. And especially after the field has been watered and you have the the brown that's that's darker because of the water against the backdrop of the green of the infield and outfield grass. And if it's a nice day, and it was for me, against the backdrop of the blue skies, maybe with some white clouds in the skies, it, it is truly a joy to watch. But even when that's done, and you say, well, we still got a half hour or so before the game, maybe now it's time to just kind of zone out for a while. Don't. I was watching, and in both bullpens, prior to the starting pitcher getting ready for the game, catchers were doing drills. For the Marlins, a coach had a pitching machine out, and the catcher first worked on blocking pitches in the dirt. Breaking balls, I think. I don't think I saw any fastballs, and I don't think typically catchers work on blocking those, but he was blocking curveballs. Then the coach did throw fastballs, and the catcher was working on receiving and his footwork as if he were going to throw to second base. On the tiger side, a catcher was doing bare hand receiving drills. Again, watch all of this and recognize all of the things that if you're not there, you don't see. All of the things that if you turn on a game of Major League Baseball or you go to a Major League game, you recognize now these men have been doing this throughout their minor league career in order to develop to get here. And as a matter of fact, even in the big leagues, they do these kinds of things. But often it goes unnoticed by a lot of fans. Now, as I mentioned, it had been three years. And in my last few years, maybe my last two years, 
of coaching and traveling around and watching our various minor league teams, I was exposed to a pitch clock. In this game, I was exposed to a number of clocks. One is not a pitch clock, and it's one I actually like. I'll talk about that in a moment. After the inning ended, the last out was made, there was a clock of 2 minutes and 15 seconds. This was a clock saying, between innings, or between half innings, this is the amount of time you have to get ready. I like this, because it's not a clock on the game. It's a clock saying, hustle off the field, hustle on the field, and let's get this game going again. I like that one. Then they also had three pitch clocks. The first was the clock between batters. So a guy flies out to center field, or a guy gets a single. Whatever the case may be, there was a clock of 30 seconds. So from one batter to the next, something had to happen. A pitch had to be delivered, generally, in 30 seconds. Then they had the pitch clock when there was the same batter, so between pitches. If nobody was on base, the pitch clock was set at 14 seconds. If there was a base runner, it was 18 seconds. Now, other than the the clock between innings, I am not a fan of pitch clocks. I'm just not. And I thought about this, maybe as a compromise. If in minor league baseball, they were to use these clocks the whole way, from rookie ball to low A to high A to double A to triple A, you would see some changes. I know I did. I saw pitchers being much more get the ball back, get on the rubber, take the sign, be ready to go. I saw hitters either staying in the box, keeping one foot in the box between pitches, which in most cases is what they're required to do, and getting back in, even if they get out much more quickly. And I thought, well, we're talking about developing major leaguers. Is it possible that maybe a compromise is to use these clocks in the minor leagues so that the players get accustomed to working in this fashion, working quickly, getting back into the box quickly, the third base coach getting the signs and giving them quickly. And if we did that, maybe then there would be a pattern developed that we wouldn't need to see these clocks in the major leagues. Something we're thinking about. But on Thursday, I got to see my first professional baseball game in person in three years. On Friday, I had a chance to watch my first high school baseball game also in several years. The game was played in Jenison. It was Jenison High School against Forest Hills Central High School. It was a doubleheader. Now, to maybe everybody listening to my voice right now, you have no idea about Jenison High School or Forest Hill Central High School. Well, I went to Jenison High School, and by the way, Jenison won both games of that doubleheader. I only saw the first game. And I'll tell you in a minute why I was there and why I only saw the first game. But in that first game, I saw something that really made me happy. I believe it was back-to-back plays. Forest Hills Central was in the field. And there was a little loopy line drive hit to, uh, to, the, to the right of the shortstop. He went over and he clanked it. And so a guy got on base. I believe it was the very next batter hit a foul pop-up down the third baseline. The third baseman came over and he duffed it as well. So back-to-back batters. Well, the Jenison High School team was in the dugout on the third baseline. I was only 10 feet removed from their dugout as I was watching. After these two plays, the Jenison High School players started chirping, squawking, mocking, basically, the Forest Hill Central players, in particular, the shortstop and third baseman. And they did so for about three to five seconds. And their head coach, who was standing in the third base coaching box, 
immediately turned to them and said, hey, enough of that. No more. And I thought, that's a good thing right there. This guy is teaching his players not only how to play the game, how to respect the game, how to respect your opponent, but life lessons that will go well beyond their baseball career. For the vast majority, maybe all of them, their baseball career is going to end when they graduate from high school. And even if there are a few that play in college or even professional baseball, he has taught them a good lesson in the game, but also a good lesson that they can take with them whenever they are out of the game. So why was I there? Why did I only watch the first game? Well, I was there because there was a ceremony that I took part of. In one sense, it was a ceremony honoring a team that I played on in 1982. So it was the 40th year since this team accomplished something. But really, fundamentally, it was a ceremony for all of us who played on that team to honor the coach of that team, Coach Gary Cook. He was a member of the United States Army before he became a teacher and baseball coach at Jenison High School. I believe in our senior year, or my senior year of 1982, he was in his fifth year of that program. He would coach for 30 years. Matter of fact, the field that the game took place at is called Gary Cook Field. And in that 30-year career, our team in 1982 was the first boys team ever to win an OK Red Conference championship. Now, back in the day, Jenison High School was in the OK White Conference. And then we moved into what at that time would have been considered the big boy conference, the OK Red. And in 1982, we were the first ever Jenison High School boys team to win a conference championship. So that's what this event was all about. But again, fundamentally about Coach Cook, who, as I mentioned, coached 30 years and had a streak at one time of 13 consecutive conference championships. And so he and we were honored before game two. And just as a little bit of a side note, we all went out, all of us players, I think there were 11 of us there. So well over two-thirds of the team that played in 1982 were there for this event. So those of us who played, as well as Coach Cook, were announced and went onto the field, and then all of us simultaneously with a bunch of current Jenison High School baseball players catching us throughout the first pitch. And so we walk on the field, they announce us, we throw the first pitch, we walk off the field, and I've got to admit that never in my life have I felt so old. I'm 58, and I feel it in my body and all that. It's, it's not that. I just thought to myself, these guys are thinking, 1982? That was 40 years ago. I mean, from their perspective, they might have thought we, that we fought in the war between the states. I, I just sense like these kids think we're so stinking old. But that's a side story. So we were there to honor the team, but mainly to honor our coach. And we had a really good team. Obviously, we won the conference championship. But get this. We had seven all-conference selections, which means when we played in the all-conference, it was called the John Boss All-Star Game, that seven of the nine people on the field at the beginning of that game were Jenison High School players. The only two positions we weren't represented at was shortstop, and our shortstop was very good defensively but didn't hit, and one outfield spot. And that outfield spot, we actually had the all-conference honorable mention. But anyway... Here we are 40 years later, and here we are gathered together, and many of us have not seen each other for decades, and we recognize the influence of Coach Cook, a very no-nonsense coach. As I mentioned, 
was part of the United States Army before he became a teacher and a coach. And he didn't take any guff, as we would have said back then. And only two of us on that team, as good as we were, I believe, only two of us played college baseball. But 40 years later, we recognize collectively and individually the impact that Coach Cook had on us. Had on a bunch of 16 to 18-year-old boys. Not very smart, not very disciplined, and how he taught us to be disciplined. How he taught us to play together as a team. How he taught us to work hard. All of those things. And here are the guys that were there. Listen, listen to the what's happened in 40 years for these guys. First, our all-conference pitcher, Dave Henning. The best pitcher we had. We had him, the nickname Hen House for Dave Henning. He was more of the farmer type in a, in a suburban Greater Grand Rapids school. Dave Henning has worked for the same company for 39 years. One year after he graduated high school, he took a job at a company, and he's been there the whole time. And that's just a picture of the way he pitched, but also, again, a tribute to what he learned while pitching at Jenison High School. Dave Mervin, our all-conference catcher, our team captain, is very successful in the world of real estate. And if you think about it, please pray for Dave Mervine. Uh, just a few months back, he lost his wife and really needs prayer. Kevin Mendine, our all-conference second baseman, is the other player beside myself, if I recall correctly, to play college baseball. And he had a great college career. He played four years of baseball at Calvin College, and even to this day, though it's been 35-plus years, I guess it's been 35 years since his college baseball career has ended, he is the only player in Calvin College baseball history to make an All-American team. And not only that, he played four years of college basketball as well. And he has spent the last several decades impacting young people around the country and over the last four years serving as the head coach at his alma mater. Another man, Greg Brown, like Kevin, has spent years impacting both high school and college young men and young women. Our all-conference outfielder, one of them, Andy Olszewski, became a United States Marine. Our other all-conference outfielder, Randy Hagg, has owned and operated multiple businesses and been very, very successful. Luis Diaz, the outfielder that was an honorable mention and was the most improved player on that team, he takes care of his aging father. He was there for the game. We all went to eat after game one or after our ceremony before game two. He couldn't go with us because he had to return home to take care of his father. He is honoring his father. Tim Heisen was a year behind me in school. He's the guy that organized this whole event, did a great job. And for many years, he coached. For many years, he impacted young men, including coaching with Coach Cook at Jenison for several years. Dave Buckley, he was also a year behind me. He was a good athlete. He could run. He was an outfielder for us. I had not seen him maybe since I graduated. And we had a long conversation. And the story that he told me of the tenacity in which he fought for and ended up preserving his marriage is just phenomenal. And the last person there is the one person who I've been in contact with regularly over the last 40, year, 40 years. We've been friends for 45 years, and that is my very good friend, Russ Johnson. And he pastors a church, Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, and he's been doing so for quite some time. Now, these are names you've never heard of till today. You'll likely never hear of again. As I mentioned, only two played in college. Yet, Coach Cook knew 
He wasn't simply trying to develop a winning baseball program, though he did that. He wasn't trying to simply develop baseball players, though he did that. He understood he was developing young men. And when I look at the young men that were on that team that I got a chance to see on Friday, I see the, the impact. I see the results of what Coach Cook did. He taught us to be men, even though we were still boys, to work hard, to make no excuses, to be dependable, to persevere, to do what's right. It was a great time. Now, that was all up in Michigan. So I had to drive from Virginia up to Michigan and back again. And in doing so, I had a lot of time to listen to podcasts that I'd kind of fallen behind on. And two of the podcasts that I had a number of episodes to listen to, both of which I've mentioned before on this podcast, were the Black Diamonds podcast and the Hard Men podcast. And many of the Black Diamonds podcasts were between, say, April 15th and May 15th. Well, not May 15th, because that was, I got home before then, but in that period. And so a lot of them had to do with the 75th year of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier and all that went on around that. And one of the things that I learned that I did not know was how instrumental the commissioner at that time, Happy Chandler, was in this happening. If it wasn't for him, Branch Rickey is not allowed to sign and ultimately bring Jackie Robinson to the big leagues. Happy Chandler stood with Branch Rickey, stood really as two men apart from most of those with authority in Major League Baseball. And I was also, through these various episodes, impressed, and and I'm going to use that word in a not necessarily a good way, with how many people, how many owners, how many general managers knew that the color barrier should come down. How many of them even wanted it to because they recognized there were a lot of great players in the Negro Leagues that could help their team. But what the issue was is they lacked courage They didn't want to stand out. They didn't want to take the heat. They didn't want their peers to criticize them. And think about it. This is in the 40s. Some of these men were a part of what we, I think, rightfully refer to as the greatest generation. And yet, they were scared, ultimately. Couple that with the various episodes I listened from Eric Kahn's Hard Men podcast. One was episode 80, which was released on May the 8th. And it was titled, How to, be, How to Properly Be Hated. I'm sorry, How to Be Properly Hated. And in their notes, the opening of their show notes say this. Are you hated in today's culture? If not, you should probably be concerned. The fact is, if you're faithful to Christ, that means the world will hate us. And in the podcast, they say, we don't want to be hated because we're a jerk but because we're faithfully following King Jesus. Christ told his disciples, you will be hated by all because of my name. Christ tells us that we are blessed when men hate us, when they insult us, when they persecute us for the sake of the Son of Man. And he reminds all of us that if the world hates us, it hated him beforehand. Going back to paying attention when you go to a ballpark, One of the things that I noticed, and and you should look for if you go to a game, is the announcement prior to the game, the stadium announcement. Here's the unacceptable, the acceptable, and unacceptable behavior at the ballpark. And one of them is, there is unacceptable language, which refers to a lot of things, including what we would call vulgar language. 
but also it referred to unacceptable language as it regards sexual orientation. Now, that, of course, begs the question, what is that unacceptable language? What if I go to the concession stand to, to buy a, a, something to eat or a drink, and I say to the person, uh, yes, man, uh, or yes, sir, would, I would like this and this and this. And he says to me, I, I do not identify as a man. I identify as a woman. And then he gets me my food or my drink, and he hands it to me, and I say to him, thank you, sir. Is that unacceptable speech? Is that a speech that might get me ejected from the ballpark? I can't even watch the game that I came to watch? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that, but it's a good and important question. And it really plays into a story that has been developing really for years, but is developing more intensely because of the time of the year that we're in right now. And it's a story that is that is a test, really. A test on whether men in professional baseball are willing to be hated by the world for faithfully following King Jesus. We're only a couple of weeks removed or away from June, which is the so-called Pride Month, which means professional baseball teams from the major leagues to the minor leagues will have their so-called Pride Day or Pride Night. And for some of these teams, and for some of the people that are playing or coaching for these teams, it means having hats or jerseys with logos on them, typically multiple colored, that are unavoidable to wearing if you're going to participate in the game. You can't play. If you don't wear the hat, you can't be on the field. If you don't wear the jersey, you can't be on the field. A former guest in the bullpen, Pastor Joshua Jenkins, noticed this going around on social media and asked if any in Major League Baseball would refuse to participate. Another former guest, Dennis Arfate, responded with saying, no, he thinks they're going to bow to the ways of the world because it would cost them their paychecks. I had some encouraging news this week. News is not the right word. I received an encouraging text. A man that I know from professional baseball sent me a text, and part of it was saying that he is encouraging a player who may be in this situation to refuse to participate. And I responded to my friend by saying, thank you. And I encouraged him to encourage, continue encouraging his friend. And then I wrote, you know, they're putting him and every other believer in a brutal situation. And for that matter, really, a lot of unbelievers. But then I said, it's necessary for believers to be clear that they cannot condone, let alone celebrate what God condemns. And I wrote, loving the LGBTQ, and I think I had three pluses, loving that group, is to point them to the forgiveness found in Christ, not encouraging them to continue in sin. I really hope that my friend has a positive impact on his friend and that if his friend is in the situation, as a Christian, he refuses to participate. But sadly, I think Dennis is probably going to be correct. And I think he's also correct that a huge reason behind it is money. But... I believe there's another very significant reason why Christian men won't do this. And it's a fear of being considered not a nice person. It's a fear of being hated by the world. It's a fear of being called a hateful person. But I wonder, do these men believe Christ's teaching that we cannot serve God and money? Do they embrace his declaration that we are actually blessed when reviled by the world 
for obeying the commandments of the Lord of glory. Do they, and do we, love Christ enough to be hated by others? But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.